and turn for the last time to the letter of James as we conclude our nine-month, 32-sermon series through this wonderful letter. Today I'm going to preach chapter 5, verses 19 through 20. We very much love the Word of God, don't need to get fancy in the teaching of it. The power of God is in the Word of God, and my job is to get out of the way and rightly divide and teach and preach the Word of God, and that's what I hope to do this morning. I praise God for the work that He's done in and through us in this series that we're calling Faith at Work. And uh, if you're enjoying what God does here today, maybe, maybe jump on our podcast and go back to the beginning and treat it as a time to be with family at home to open the Bible and study the Word of God with us um, from wherever you're at throughout your week. Let me pray for us as we dig in. Father God, we thank you for this time together. What a blessing it is to be the body of Christ, to be in a place where we can fellowship and begin our week to really bring our first fruits of our week, to prioritize the worship of you, the study of your word, uh, to practice the one another's with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, I thank you for the work you've done in these last nine months as we've aimed to be faithful in the preaching of this letter that you've ordained to be in your holy word. These words you would have for us to teach us, admonish us, shape us, sanctify us, and grow us, Lord, that you would continue that work here today as we conclude this series. We love you, God, and be at work mightily in us. May we be present to worship and adore you as we study your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. James chapter 5, verse 19 and 20 says this, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. He says, my brothers, this is the eighth time that James has addressed his audience this way. Eight times in just these three pages, just five chapters of this very short letter. He has this term of endearment for his fellow Christians that he's writing to. This is unique in this. Consider all of the writings of Paul in the New Testament, all of the letters that Paul wrote. And Paul, in all of those writings, only uses this term of affection eight times. The same eight times, but in a much wider body of work. Now, not that Paul doesn't have other terms of affection that he uses, in addressing the saints and the church. But there's something special about James' love for his brethren in Christ. These are Christians who are dispersed and going through real struggles, real persecutions. We know that in the opening verses of the letter. Even though James is not writing to a particular church, like many of the epistles in the New Testament are focused He treats his readers, church, as family because they are his family, his blood-bought, eternal family. I really want that to sink in with us this morning. Let me just ask you, do you have an orientation wherever other Christians are, whether you personally know them or not, they are family to you? Now understand, when James says, my brothers, he's 
not meaning only the men in the church. He's meaning the brothers and the sisters, the adopted blood-bought family of God. James loves his adopted family. The wide audience that he's writing to are, are converted Jews, saved those who trusted the, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, with their lives, representing the 12 tribes. They're redeemed by the blood of Jesus. This is his eternal family. And it really means something important to him, by which he constantly comes back to this term of endearment. They might be distant, but they are loved. Here at Disciples Church, we join James in a true joy that it is to be a part of his of God's family. And I don't mean that in the loose sense of the term, like Christians kind of throw it around. I mean in the very intimate sense. We who are saved by Jesus are blood-bought family. I would argue, according to Scripture, that means something more than it is to be blood family. Our culture wants to hold highest our blood family. I would argue scriptures hold higher our blood-bought family. And this is a reorientation of thinking that we, the church, need to have. It breaks my heart when brothers and sisters who are true and intimate part of this family decide to suddenly treat us like strangers or even worse like enemies instead of family beloved there is a unity a bond that we have in Christ that is like nothing else and no sinful pride no man-made agenda no hurt no circumstance should ever divide it This is God's heart for his redeemed church. And therefore, why the New Testament scriptures are littered with commands to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That doesn't mean you try once, you have a half-hearted effort, and then you give up. It means you make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, Ephesians 4.3. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and there be no divisions among you, but that you are united in the same mind and same judgment, 1 Corinthians 1.10. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. And above all else, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you indeed were called in one body. Colossians three twelve through 15 Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart, and a humble mind. 1 Peter 3.8 And I could go on and on and on. Do you see God's plea in His Word for us to fight for each other, for family? Church, the enemy wants nothing more than for your flesh to stir up Things like distrust for each other. 
unresolved hurt, envy and jealousy, pride and self-mindedness. These are things the flesh majors in, and they will create real and painful division, or at best they will keep you from being really united to the body of Christ the way God wants us to be. Make it personal for you today. What must you do to put away the things that keep you distant and to put on things that bind us together? Hear me clearly. There is no reason if we remain faithful to our Lord and His Word. Hear that clarity. If we remain faithful to our Lord and His Word, there is no reason we can't run this race together until we die. Amen? You are my eternal family in Christ. So I want to make every effort to fight for you and for us and for what Christ has died for us to have. No matter how hard it is, no matter how long it takes. Paul says, if at all possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Romans 12, 18. What must you do to shed, confess, repent of, or simply put away any hurt, doubt, fear, or thing that is dividing you from the family of God? He paid too high a price for us to selfishly or lazily not do business with these things. James says again and again in his letter, My brothers, brethren, He loves them so deeply because of the bond they share in Christ. This creates a true love, a a deep affection for his blood-bought family. The way Paul describes it in Philippians 1.8 when he says, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. That word affection in the Greek there is better translated as intestines, guts. My yearning for you is is from my gut. It's that deep yearning. I love you. I yearn for you with true, tender affection. I miss you. I'm homesick for you. You mean that much to me. Church, that is the way we are to feel for each other in the body of Christ. To only feel that way for your blood family is to not understand what it is to be part of the eternal family of God. I don't know what kind of church you might be looking to be part of or might have settled for in the past. But these things I've just described, this unity, this bond, this love, this endurance, this commitment, we are to have together in Christ. Nothing less. Nothing generic. Nothing that's casual or come and go. Nothing like what the modern church is selling or what modern church hoppers are often guilty of looking for. If you want casual, you came to the wrong church. If you want superficial, this is not for you. We want to be the church described in these pages. And it is hard. 
and it it will not satisfy the masses. It's been a journey. I was taught to build the big thing in my earlier years, to preach to the masses, to gather the big crowds. I was good at it. And in God's conviction, in our time, and our leadership's growth in the Word, the reformation of this church over the last 10 years, we had to get a lot smaller to get healthy. I had to put away my tricks in teaching and preaching and stories that I know would make you cry and all this nonsense. I just get back to preaching the Word of God. There's the power of God's in the Word of God. And what the church is meant to be is according to Him, not according to modern day ideologies and business models and what we think is great. I want to be the church that's described in these pages, the church that Jesus spilled out his perfect blood for. James is writing this letter to his brothers and sisters in Christ because he wants so badly for them to know that true saving faith in Jesus Christ does not mean passive or casual Christianity, but a serious life lived for Jesus whereby a person puts that faith to work. That true faith goes to work. It does not sit idle. That true Christians work out their salvation. They honor God with their lives. They grow in sanctification. They walk by faith and not by sight. James loves his brothers and sisters He wants them to thrive in their faith. And so he doesn't conclude this letter like many other epistles are concluded with general greetings or benedictions. But instead with a summons to action. And that would make sense. He gives this instruction because not everyone who is of true faith is going to always work out that faith. But they're going to wander and they're going to need brothers and sisters in Christ to bring them back from their sinful practices or beliefs. He's going to call the faithful to go out and to put their faith to work by bringing back those whose faith is not at work in the current moment that they're in. Those who are dangerously close to proving that they never had saving faith at all because they're wandering from truth and embracing sin. That's why in verse 20, the consequence that James says he's, these who do this are saving them from is death, forgiveness, non-forgiveness of sins. That, that's what's on the line because those who don't have true saving faith prove to still be under condemnation. We'll get back to that in verse 20. I said it in the opening sermon of this series nine months ago that there are more imperative verbs in James' letter, this letter, than in any other New Testament book. More specific commands, back to back to back to back. That's why it's packed. That's why it's so good. So practical. And why it's only fitting that James then would give one last instruction for believers to put to work before he puts his pen down. Right? I got one last thing to say. Here's one more. God wants them, those hearers that he wrote to, and us, the church ongoing in the, in the preservation of his holy word, 
to live out this final command. So church, as we, as I preach, as you study with me this text, let us lean in so that we would be doers and not hearers only. Amen? My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, number one, you can wander from the truth by believing something false or by not believing something true, by denying sound doctrine. Or you can wander from the truth by living in a way that's contrary to the truth of our Lord Jesus and his gospel. This is what Paul meant in Galatians 2.14. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, they were not in step with the gospel. The New Testament scriptures are filled with examples of people who played the part who said they loved God, who did many things in the name of the Lord Jesus, but proved in the end to have not been truly saved. Jesus himself gives some of the most sobering words about this in Matthew 7, 22-23, saying that there will be many, not few, but many who claim to believe in him as Lord, who did many things in his name, but in the end who never truly knew him. Mark 4, 44 through 20. Mark 4, 4 through 20. Jesus tells a parable about different soils, hardened, rocky, thorny, and readied soil. A passage that's largely, largely mispreached, misapplied, misunderstood out of its context. He tells this parable to illustrate that there will be many, by his sovereign decree, who do not ever have ears to hear or eyes to see they will not have true saving faith it will look like they do there will be for a time evidences that kind of look like they do but in the end they will not have enduring faith Isaiah 29 13 speaks of those who draw near to God with their words but their hearts are far from him In John's Gospel, we read numerous accounts of people who claim faith in Jesus, but they didn't remain. They didn't continue. They proved to have false faith or dead faith, as James would call it earlier in this letter. John 6, verse 66, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So in other words, there are many who claim to believe in Jesus, followed him for a season as as even named disciples, but eventually turned their back on him and walked away from their so-called faith. They did not have enduring faith. They did not honor God faithfully. The faith they claimed to have was superficial. Later in John's first letter that he writes, 1 John chapter 2, 19, he says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, it might become, as it might be, that it might become plain that they are all not of us. These are family. These are people who ate and served and grew up with. Yet their lack of endurance, their lack of perseverance showed that whatever faith they claimed to have was superficial. It was not true saving faith. We need not be surprised at all this or when this happens among people we know because the scriptures talk about it all the time. 
In 1 Timothy 4.1, Paul warns us that some will depart from the faith. Later, Paul tells Timothy, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but will have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That is happening all around us. 2 Timothy 4, 3-4. Paul warns the Ephesian elders about the reality of those with false faith rising up from among their very own flock, proving to not be in the truth. Acts 20, 28-31. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which you in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will rise up men, speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears. The true work of the shepherds of the flock. And this, this, what I've given you so far, although it might feel like a lot in a moment, is just a sampling of Scripture. Warning, proclaiming the reality that everyone who claims the name of Jesus is not necessarily devoted to or belonging to Jesus. And one of the great litmus tests of true faith, of enduring faith, of true saving faith, is repentance from sin. While we all, hear me right now, we all will have moments where we sin, where we backslide, where we lapse. If we truly are of God, if we're saved in true faith, we will not practice sin unrepentantly. We will not have a wholesale wandering from the truth into sin. We will not have a lack of desire to fight sin or confess or repent from sin. True love for Jesus means you will never give up your fight against pride and sin. That's what your true faith means. You will slip. You will struggle, sometimes in great ways, but you will repent. You will return. And when you don't, you likely prove to never have been truly saved, never truly have been among us. That's what the scriptures teach. For James, I heard one commentator say that James' view of this is correct doctrine cannot be separated from correct behavior. Right and true faith in God will produce a life of obedience to God. That said, all that said, there will be some and at times many who will wander from the truth and who will not repent, who will need a lot of prayer, pursuit, and for some discipline and for some disfellowship with the high hopes that they do repent and return to the faith. Amen? To the truth, to the unity of the brotherhood. Now, what we don't do is run straight to conclusions that those who are wandering or are in a moment or a season of unrepentant sin are not saved. We don't, we don't know the status of their heart. 
although we do know the status of their fruit and we treat them as such in that season. We need to still consider them a brother or sister in Christ as we pray and fight for them, especially in early stages of their wandering. James 5.19, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back. So there is, at least up until that point, a testimony of Christ, a, a belonging to the body. There isn't among us. We need to count them as brothers and sisters in Christ, love them as blood-bought family, fight for them as, children, as God's children, pray for them like we would hope to be prayed for ourselves. They are our family, or at least by the evidence of their testimony and their love to this point have shown to be. Hear me clearly. They will only prove to not be brothers and sisters in Christ if there is no bringing them back. If eventually there is no true repentance. That's where we're headed. But first, look with me at the rest of verse 19. James 5, 19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back. So what does the ministry of bringing him back look like? We want to know because we need to practice this. This is God's command for us, the church, to do. First and foremost, we need to pray for them unceasingly. For, I would say first, I would say second, third, ninth, twelfth, forty-ninth, second to last and last. We need to be praying for them. James, we just studied this, James 5, 16. Look back just a couple verses. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is great power and it's working. We saw in these study uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.17 that we are to pray without ceasing. Ephesians 5, 6, Ephesians 6.18 Pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. We trust in the power of God to do the will of God as we pray. Why? Because with God all things are possible. Amen? Matthew 19.26 We need to be praying. Truly. Number two, we need to admonish them with truth and love. Paul says in Colossians 3.16, we are to be teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Let me say it this way. Teaching is preventative. It's how God wants his sheep to be grounded in truth so that you don't wander into myths and lies and sin and selfishness. That's why we need to surround ourselves with sound Bible teachers and expositors. Test all things according to the word. Teaching is preventative. Admonishment is corrective. Before we get into admonishment, let's consider real quickly what truth is, because we need to admonish in truth and love. I love John Piper's quote, If God exists, then he is the measure of all things. What he thinks about all things is the measure of what we should think. Not to care about truth is not to care about God. To love God passionately is to love truth passionately. Being God-centered in life means being truth-driven in ministry. What is not true 
is not of God. What is false is anti-God. Indifference to the truth is indifference to the mind of God. What Piper's elevating here needs to be essential in our hearts as the church because of what the scriptures reveal to us about God, that the eternal triune God is truth. Let me show you just quickly three passages that point this out. Speaking of God the Father, Romans 3, 3 through 4, What then, if some do not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God? Will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true. Though every man be found a liar. Speaking of God the Son, Jesus, John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. John 15, 26 and 16, 13, speaking of God the Spirit, when the Helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me, verse sixteen thirteen. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Because God is truth, the church is called to teach and admonish others in truth, in the truth of God. Not according to our opinions, our ideas, but the truth of God. This is the foundation for what we're called to do. Colossians 1.28 He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Admonishment church is highlighting the truth for someone so that they can see their error and then hopefully repent and turn back to truth, turn back to God. The practice of teaching truth and admonishing one another is the practice of the Christian life. If you don't believe me, jump on board and take a quick little ride with me through just a couple of Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus. I'm not going to show you all this, I'm just going to speak it, so you just need to listen and take this quick tour with me. First Timothy in chapter 2 says, The household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Keep close watch on yourself and on the teaching, on your doctrine. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be found complete, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 4, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience in teaching. Rebuking, admonishing, teaching, Again and again and again. Titus 1. Give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith. Titus 2. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. And on and on and on. What's amazing though is how much God gives us this instruction 
that we need to be practicing rebuke, admonishment, and reproof. And yet, sadly, these practices have been moved to the back burner in the average church. If not, removed all the way. Why? Because it stirs things up. Because it affects attendance. Because we're guilty of listening to the culture more than we're listening to the Word. Because the culture says, oh, you don't involve yourselves in other people's business. And we listen. And then we take that ideology and we insert it into the church. The modern church's love affair with trying to be attractional means that these kinds of biblical commands are no-nos. You don't teach on them. And you don't do them. Or as minimal as possible. We must repent of any removal of any of these practices and dive headlong in obedience into the things that God has called us to do. Because we belong to Him. It's His. It's all His. Why else do we do this? Because we're talking about our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because we love them. Because we need to love them more than we love ourselves. More than we love comfort. Oh no, let's not do those things because that's going to stir up. And, and I like it comfortable. Let's just leave it there. Do you realize that when you don't lovingly rebuke someone who's in sin, admonish them, you are in sin. Because what you're looking to protect is the friendship you don't want to change. You are selfishly driven in that moment. Instead, you need to be willing to lose it all in the name of truth, in the name of real love. Admonishment is to warn or reprimand firmly. Look with me at Galatians 6, verse 1. Brothers, there's Paul using that term. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. The brother or sister in Christ that is caught up in sin, in unrepentant sin. Doesn't mean they sinned and repented. If that's the case, you don't need to be caught. You caught yourself, you confessed it, you turned from it. When you're caught, you're, you're in it. You're doing it. You're unrepentant. He says, you who are spiritual should restore him. Well, who is that? And sometimes quickly you go, well, that's, that's the spiritually elite, right? That's, that's, that's the tenured in the faith. That's you shepherds. You guys do that, right? No. It, this is Galatians 6.1. We read Scripture in the context of Scripture. What did Paul just finish describing as those who are in the Spirit? Well, in chapter 5, just a few verses before... The spiritual are those who are led by the Spirit, 518, walking by the Spirit, 516 and 25, those bearing the fruit of the Spirit, 522 and 23. He's saying if you are walking by the Spirit and as a result have the fruit of the Spirit, there is a work to be done. In other words, if you're alive in Jesus and the Spirit's in you, this is for you to do. An assignment's been given to all of us who are in Christ, who are in the Spirit to come alongside those of us wandering from the truth and to restore them, 
Restore them in a spirit of gentleness. What does this mean? Well, it means when we go to correct and admonish, we, we have to prayerfully, and sometimes even with some coaching, make sure that our flesh is not in the way. That we don't do this in pride or arrogance or ego. Paul has this in view, because in verse 3-5, through five, if anyone thinks he is something when he is not something, he deceives himself. So we need to check pride and ego. When we go to bring admonishment or correction, restoring a person, we need to do it lovingly and not arrogantly. It says that we are to restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Restore. In the Greek, when we look at that word more closely, it essentially what's trying to be said there is a return to a former condition. It means to set the bone that's been broken. In love, in gentleness. The goal is that we bring them back to the truths of the gospel, the truths of the word. And to do this, we don't need to get loud. Why? Because the truth is loud. Turn back a few chapters, Galatians 2. We see an example of this between two very respected brothers in the early church. Guys, maybe you've heard of Paul and Peter. Peter, named Cephas, came to Antioch, chapter Galatians 2, 11 through 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. They played to one crowd when they were with them, and then sinfully, in a racist way, played to another crowd. The the sin was at work. Paul loves them enough in verse 14, When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the gospel, with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, before them all, He corrects him in front of everyone because what he did was in front of everyone. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? He rebukes and admonishes Peter right in front of everyone for his conduct was out of step with the truth of the gospel. The temptation of the flesh might be, oh, I'm going to keep Peter happy with me because he's a big player in this game. I'm not going to say anything. No, the truth was most important. Love for him, getting right, was more important. Now some of you are maybe starting to think, Pastor, that's great, but it's just not me. I'm just not comfortable with confrontation. I don't like the idea of telling someone they're out of line. And I'll tell you that that thought process is very common. And it brings up the question, why should we admonish one another? If I feel that way, why should I do this? And the answer is, because God commands you to. Because you're not to be led by your feelings or your preferences, but by the authority of the Word of God. 
Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So there's, you need to do it in wisdom, so there can be coaching, there can be maturing, but we don't throw it off. We don't not do it. Luke 17.3, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Are you paying attention to yourselves, to the body, to one another? Are you looking out for one another? 2 Thessalonians 3.14-15 As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, letter, take note of that person. Have nothing to do with them. That he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Whether it's a formal process of admonishment, rebuke, discipline, or an everyday process, it's not an optional thing for us as Christians to do. We must fight for each other in truth and love. Two examples of this. Formal admonishment, rebuke, reproof. Jesus teaches us in Matthew 18, 15 through 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. <clears throat> if he listens to you, you've gained a brother. Man, you're right. That's, I see my sin in that. Thank you for loving me well. I confess that it's sin. I re- I'm not doing that anymore. Wonderful. I love you, brother. Let's pray. Let's seek the Lord together. This is wonderful. Can I encourage you? Can I tell you what I try to do when one of you rebukes or admonishes me? To put away any thinking of like, I'm the pastor, they're the sheep, they're telling me. like All that nonsense that we like to think of in our flesh. Th- that thing that we quickly start to do like, oh, but... Oh, but I don't mess up. Well, you're telling me I messed up. Wait, and, and, and all these like things that we, oh, but that wasn't, and we want to make excuses. You know, the best thing we can do is just, whoosh, and just lean in and go, my brother or sister's trying to love me right now. They're trying to help me see something that I don't see. So, so I just want to listen really well. And, and I, want, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt, and I want to hear them, and I want to look for if something that I'm very likely out of step and, and need I fight sin every day and I need to confess that. I need to be willing to repent from it. And that we'd be good at that. If they don't listen, he goes on, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So there's a wondering now. There's a rightness. And so there needs to be a little more evidence. So there's, there's a, a, a period like it's going to start going this way. If they confess and repent, great, wonderful. Praise God. Sometimes it takes another brother to help, help the clarity happen. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If they refuse to listen to even the church, let him be to a Gentile and a tax collector. And we do that because it's loving for them to take away the blessing of the body while they're in unrepentant sin. It's not, any of you who have parented before, you know this. If one parent brings discipline for sin in the child, and the other parent says, forget the discipline here, I'm going to give it to you everything you want anyway, is the child mature, disciplined, helped? No, they're completely undercut. So you must go in that together. The discipline must be carried out 
in unity. That's formal admonishment, rebuke, reproof that we see modeled in that place. And in other places, daily admonishment, reproof, and rebuke. This is something we should do daily. Listen to Hebrews 3, 12-13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today. Is today called today? So we should be exhorting each other. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For those of you still struggling, like I just don't know. I don't know if this is me. I don't know if I can do this. You can do it. Christ in you can do it. God's commanded you to do it. But let me just help you, show you, you are already doing it. Unless you're totally a terrible parent, you're doing this at home with your children. If one of my kids gets too rough with one of their siblings, especially one of my older kids with one of the younger ones, and crosses a line, I don't video it and put it on Facebook and laugh. I don't, I don't stay busy with what I'm doing and say, oh, they'll get it eventually. No, I correct that child. I discipline that child. I don't wait. I don't ignore it. I need to love them enough to get off the couch to get down on a knee, to look them in the eye, and to engage, and to bring correction, and to love them. If one of my children shows a pattern of sin and no sign of repentance, I bring forth a more formal sit-down with that child. If that doesn't go well, Jennifer and I begin a more formal process of discipline and correction. If that's still not going well, we invite other brothers and sisters around us to say, help us learn how to do this. Why? Because we love our child to not remain in sin that's hurting them. What we don't do is avoid needed discipline because that would not be loving to them. Now many of you might be sitting and thinking, but doing that with my kids and my family, okay, Pastor, that's different. You're saying i got to do that with these people, my brothers and sisters in Christ in my church? In the body of Christ? And if that's you, if you're thinking that right now, I just want to say, are you hearing yourself? Your brothers and sisters in Christ in the church are your family. Again, biblically, there can be a strong argument to say they are more your family than your blood family. Your blood family that Jesus himself says serves a temporal purpose in your life that he's so bold to say that his coming actually will bring division between you and your unbelieving blood family for the sake of the gospel in some instances. That's how highly elevated the blood-bought family is and not elevated the blood family is, like our culture wants to make it an idol of all idols. And we get caught up in that. We must see this today. The Bible calls us, God commands us to be family, to live out these one another's, that Jesus died for this unity for us to have. It is your business, it is your place to do this. And if he says, says who? Says God. 
any righteous rebuke is kindness, says the word of God. Psalm 141.5 Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. It is kindness to be admonished, the psalmist says. It is not loving to leave people in their mess. One of the most loving things you can do for someone is tell them when they're wrong, help them be restored in the truth of God. James 5.19, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, see there, someone brings him back. Realize with me, it is God's will to often use us, his people, to bring back erred brothers and sisters in Christ. Does this mean he's dependent on us to do that? No. But we are to be faithful in fighting for them as he's commanded us to, and not passive. Amen? Now, if the wandering person does eventually repent and return from their wandering in sin, their practice of sin, they, they prove to be of us. If they don't return, if they don't repent, they prove to not be of us, as the scriptures and all of those examples say so clearly. And this brings us to verse 20. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Quick clarity, real quick, I want to do. He says bring back a sinner, but I thought we were talking about brothers and sisters who are among us. It is rare and not recommended that we ever refer to a brother or sister in Christ as a sinner. Why? Because... Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is past and the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5.17 We're sloppy with our modern Christian ease. Often you hear people say, I'm just a sinner who's saved by grace. I would say, well, I know what you're getting at with that. You're not saying that correctly. You are not a sinner anymore. A sinner is someone who practices sin. That's what a sinner is. One who is defined by their practice of sin. That's your former state. That's not your current state in Christ. Do you still fight sin? Yes. Do you still sin? Yes. Are you to be labeled a sinner who practices sin? No. The right term for the redeemed is saint. Are they perfect? No. That's not what saint means. It means a saint is someone who is in Christ. Someone who is standing on the perfect work of Christ, not their own work. You hear people say, oh, we're all just sinners. Well, not, not those in Christ. Those in Christ have a new title, a new identity. Saint, brother, sister, redeemed, beloved, child of God. Listen to Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Were, past tense. I used to be a practicing slave of sin. According to Romans 6, I've now been freed from that and have the power of God at work in me to overcome sin, to turn away from sin, to repent of sin. 
So a sinner is not a good description of a saved child of God. But it is an appropriate title to use when describing one who is caught in a season of practicing sin and who is unrepentant, as James is using it here. James is saying, let it be known among you, whoever brings back a sinner, one who is caught up in unrepentant sin, who is practicing sin unrepentantly, who is from among you, who has wandered wandered from the truth, Whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. If they repent, they prove to be of Christ. Their faith continues to be at work and it is not proven to be false or dead. They return humbly to honoring God, to participating in the body, to growing in faith and obeying God. And therefore, all the realities of a truly saved Christian apply to them. Meaning they are not under condemnation, as the scripture is clear, for all, for all saved saints. Their soul is not headed to eternal death. Their sins are, are forgiven. They will finish in faith and be forever with God. That's true of the truly saved. Even if you had backslidden and you return and walk in faith ongoingly, you prove those things to be true for you. What is huge, though, is the opposite. The fate of the unrepentant is eternity in hell, is proof that you don't have saving faith, is that you're not forgiven for your sins. That's the potency of the warning that James is bringing here. The one who returns proves to be of us and not apart from Christ. They prove to be forgiven of sin and saved from eternal death. Church, this is good news. And therefore, it's worth all of the hard work that comes with it. All of the tears. All of the sleepless nights. All the heartache. Our faith, if it's real, will go to work and it will remain at work. That is James' point all throughout this letter. We will finish in faith. We will win the prize. We will belong to God. We will be kept by Him until the end. Even if we've backslidden and needed admonishment or discipline, if we repent and return, we prove to belong to the Lord and not to the devil. In Christ, our soul will be saved from death and our sin is forgiven. Praise be to God. Amen? What an amazing sermon series this has been. I'm so thankful for God's written word in our language. I'm so thankful for the letter of James and its practical outworking in our lives this year. And I just commend you, do not put it away. Do not put what you've learned away and move on, but let these truths continue to teach us, refine us, embolden our faith as it remains at work until he calls us home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this beautiful, wonderful, final instruction from James, from you, that we, the church, would practice these things, that we would practice them according to the scriptures, not according to what we think is right or better or more peaceable or easy, but according to the scriptures. We pray for those who we know who we're praying for, who are 
uh, walking in unrepentant sin, who, who their pride's getting the best of them. They're throwing away all that the scriptures call us to be and to do. We pray that they would repent. We pray that they would turn. We trust you with it. I pray that we would not give in to fear of man or comfort or the things that keep us from practicing these things. But that we'd practice them boldly, faithfully, in unity, and according to truth. I pray for anyone here today that might just be really feeling convicted for their own sin, that they would genuinely, truly, and fully confess it as sin and turn from it to make whatever plans necessary to walk obediently with you the rest of their days. That what is most important is God and their testimony of the gospel. Whatever it takes, your glory, Lord. And as we sing about the beauty of this gospel right now, as we sing about the wondrous cross, Lord, it's not wood that we worship. It's the work of the holy God in our place that we sing praise. Your amazing grace is worthy of our praise. Hear us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.